Um, thanks, Rick, and uh, thanks to everyone for coming and for having me. Um, so, um, as Rick says, I'm, I view this talk as having a bunch of purposes. Um, one is I just want to let you know what I'm doing and get your reactions to it. Um, two, I hope to, you know, let you know what's going on in economics on social interactions, this line of research. And three, um, give you a sense of some uh, talks that I've arranged that will be taking place here, excuse me, this quarter and next quarter and hopefully in the coming years that will be studying these issues. Um, so to sort of provide a context for those, for those presentations. Um, social scientists, um, not just economists, especially sociologists and others, have looked at how groups affect people's behaviors. Um, and the term that economists who are thinking about this type of work use are social interactions models, as Rick um, said. And the idea here is that people's behavior is going to depend on the behaviors of the other people in whatever groups they belong to. Um, and economists, I think, don't, you know, one of the, the themes at Mershon is, is identity. That there's not a lot of, it probably doesn't come as a huge surprise, that there's not a lot of really rigorous work on something like culture, identity, and economics. I think one of the few ways that economists have to talk about identity and culture rigorously is through social interactions models, that one pe people are being affected by the other people around them and how, the, how those influences are working. Um, in economics, uh, the work in this area goes back actually to sociology and to work by William Julius Wilson. Wilson um, did these great maps of the city of Chicago in which he shaded different neighborhoods according to the uh, unemployment rates in them. And um, he said, wow, you know, there's some neighborhoods where, you know, 20% of the able-bodied, working-age men aren't working. And, you know, then there are other neighborhoods in which, you know, basically everyone works. And he says, well, you know, this is, there's got to be some cultural explanation. He had a bunch of explanations. But, you know, one of the things that he said was, you know, there's got to be some culture of, you know, welfare culture, poverty culture, culture of work, what have you. I mean, these are my terms. But you know, that was the, the, the answer that he had um, to this. Economists, um, and, you know, I actually had the opportunity to talk to him at one point. I took his class in graduate school, I, and I asked him this question. He wasn't particularly impressed, but um, that's a, a side story. Economists sort of said, look, you know, gee, there's something weird. You know, you know, all these neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago are the ones where no one's working, and, you know, then if you look at the, you know, the areas where everyone is working, that's like Lincoln Park and the Gold Coast and all of these things. And, you know, gee, you know, maybe there's something different about the guys who are living in these, you know, high poverty neighborhoods in the south side that's sort of different from the guys who are living on the Gold Coast, you know. Like if they could afford to live on the Gold Coast, they probably would too, you know. Um, 
So, you know, that, 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 that where people are living, you know, the groups that they're exposed to are related to the stuff about them that we observe. You know, that the, you know, the investment bankers and corporate lawyers, you know, make good money and live in fancy neighborhoods and all their neighbors work really hard. And then the, the guys who can't, you know, don't have the human capital or what have you to do that live in less, ad, you know, less appealing neighborhoods and, and don't have, you know, are subject to something different. Okay, is that, um, if, if, if I'm, as I'm going through this, I mean, this, this is, uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, a talk to a wide variety of audiences. So if I'm going through this and, and there are questions, you know, um, you know, do do stop me and let me know, and I'll try to you know I'll try to try to you know clarify things if it is if if there are problems here. Okay, so the the issue is that you know you have these guys and they're selecting neighborhoods voluntarily or involuntarily, and the guys who select sort of the nice neighborhoods and the nice social groups are the ones who have that ability to do that, and the ones who 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 don't, you know, select the not as appealing neighborhoods and social groups are the ones who don't really have any alternatives. And there's something about the guys that's, you know, related to where they're living. Um, economists, um, for those of you who have the misfortune to know us, um, are causality freaks. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the book Freakonomics, half of the reason that it was entitled Freakonomics was because it was about causality and the fact that we are, you know, obsessed with causality issues. And that, I think, is a good thing, at least to a large extent, although sometimes we go overboard. Um, but economists who are trying to get at this idea that people are selecting their groups have done a whole variety of, um, of policies, the most, or, or, or experiments or quasi-experiments, the most striking of which is, is known as MTO, or moving to opportunity. Uh, Larry Katz at Harvard and others um, convinced the Department of Housing and Urban Development to um, spend about $70 million. That's seven zero million dollars um, And what they did is they went to, to public housing residents, and they said, listen, we will give you the right to move out of these, this public housing by giving you a voucher that you can use in a, in a better neighborhood. And, but they were clever. They said, we're going to, you know, people are going to apply for these things and we're going to make sure that there are not enough vouchers to go around. And then we're going to randomly assign people to a treatment group and a control group. And so we can see whether the guys who, you know, randomly are assigned the voucher to move to a better neighborhood do better than the people who are randomly assigned to the control group who don't get a, a voucher, just sort of like you'd expect in, you know, some medical treat, you know, this guy gets the placebo and that guy gets the, you know, the medication and see if there's a difference in outcomes. And, I mean, I can talk about the results in more detail if, if there's interest, but, you know, I think the main result from this study, which is, you know, expensive and large scale and very impressive, is that the, the neighborhoods don't seem to have any effect on people. I mean, I think even the people who've done these things are sort of shocked that they don't, you don't find that neighborhoods really seem to affect people when you randomly are assigning people. People have used, um, you know, other aspects of public housing, right? Um, you know, anytime that, that you can assign people to be in some social group, that's sort of a good thing in terms of random, randomization. The other thing is that people look at college roommates 
And, you know, because the university says you're living here and you're living there and you don't have a choice. About, I mean, you know, then you can try to move, but, you know, it's, it's, that's going to be an expensive process. And, in fact, um, two of the talks that, that are coming up in this vein, um, Scott Carroll, who will be at the beginning of February, and G.G. Foster, who will be in the middle of May, are going to be looking at, at you know, I don't say roommates, but, you know, um, Broadly conceived, Scott has, originally I put that in quote, is Scott has very cool data from the U.S. Air Force Academy where they've, the, you know, the, the military can do things that, you know, universities can do things, but the military can really do stuff, right? And so they said, they said, you know, you're, we're going to sign people to groups and then you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be stuck there and we're going to make you hang out with these people whether you want to or not. And so he has, so he has really, you know, really, really cool data. Um, to look at some of these issues. So, are, uh, b before I move on, is this are there, are there questions at this point? Is this okay? Okay. I mean, please do. If as I'm going, if you're sort of like, the, the, my monitor's on. Is the this um, the slide looks great to me? Oh, okay. Okay, cool. I'm sure it'll go any second. Perfect. Okay, thanks. I don't know what I did wrong there, but um, so it probably so 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 just to recap, you know, economists doesn't seem to like this slide here. Must something must have just okay. I'll just get this out of here. Okay. So just to recap, what economists have done is that we've thought very carefully about the causality issues in terms of do neighborhoods affect people and social groups affect people. It probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to you that we've taken a rather limited view of the social processes that occur within groups. Um, and in particular, we've assumed that people, and not just economists, I mean, I think this is a, you know, a, true for a variety of disciplines, but economists certainly aren't the ones who are, who are doing path-breaking work, moving, you know, get it going further, that assume that people are equally affected by everyone in their groups. And, you know, this is, this is just like gotta be wrong, right? I mean, and it's gotta be wrong, I mean, off the, you know, off the back of my head, I can think of two reasons it's got to be wrong, and you guys can probably think of, of, of 50 more. But, you know, one thing is that, you know, we associate with certain people and not with other people, and surely we're affected more by the people with whom we associate than the people who we don't talk to. You know, the neighbors who I talk to are, affect me, and the guys who I just have no clue who they are, they have no impact on me or negligible impact on me. The second thing, and this is going to be this is going to be the focus of this paper. The second thing, and this is something that I'm actually working on now, and I'm going to be continuing working on over the coming years, 
is that you think that there are particular individuals and groups that are prominent, I'll call leaders, but I mean you can call them what you want to, who have larger effects than other people. They, they, they sort of set the tone for people. Um, so, as I say, my, um, my focus here is going to be on how people choose their associates. I'm going to, affect, to focus on what sociologists think of as homophily, what economists would say that people choose people to you know, associate with people who are like themselves, whether it's based on race, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, but you could think about it as religion or whatever other behaviors, whatever other dimensions you want to. The, the race, ethnicity, and socioeconomics are the things that I'm going to have in my data. Um, and then we're going to study how people's behaviors are affected by their associates. Okay. Um, the data for this study are going to come from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health, known as AdHealth. Um, it contains data on the backgrounds and behaviors of uh, students. I'm going to be focusing on high school students, nine, grades 9 through 12, in 101 schools. Um, and it's sort of the unique feature of this data, the thing that, that's really exciting, is that they've asked everyone who their five closest male friends and five closest female friends are. So you can recon, and, they, and they've surveyed everyone in the school who wasn't you know, sick on that day or what have you. So you can reconstruct the friendship networks in these schools. Um, and that's, that's very unique. The sample that I'm going to have winds up with just under 45,000 observations. Okay. Um, so why, just I want to go back and sort of before I, before I launch into the, 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 the empirical work, you know, full tilt, um, I want to just sort of give you some recap of why, you know, why I think, I hope that you'll be interested in this. So in terms of the, the high school student dimension, I mean, this is an age at which we think that people are forming their attitudes towards other groups and as well as their human capital that's going to determine their life outcomes and their interactions with people from the same groups, different groups and behaviors. Um, schools also are very useful laboratory, right? They, they provide, you know, if you wanted to think about who I socialize with and who I interact with, you got to get guys in Germany and Japan and, and China and Israel. You know, you know, you need to have a data set with six billion people in it. Okay, so you know, the nice thing about these school children is, in addition to the fact that I think we're we think it's an age at which people are forming their attitudes, is that you know, if I get a survey with a hundred or two hundred or a thousand students. I know who they're, you know, I know who they're interacting with, and I get about 80% of their associations within these schools. So I can, I can pretty tightly tell you who they're hanging out with, and I don't have to, you know, survey everyone in California and 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 Jerusalem. Um, you know, one of the things that this that that you know another reason that that I think this is interesting is I'm going to. Um, provide an, an explanation for the weak effects of these housing mobility experiments. Um, as I said, we have these, these, these very impressive studies where we take sort of at-risk kids from areas where everyone is at risk and we move them to um, 
social groups where only a lot of the people are at risk, you know, maybe half. So, and, you, and, and the people who've looked at this have said, well, crap, you know, we've, we've cut the poverty rate, the delinquency rate, the, you know, whatever you name it, non-marital fertility rate, in half. You know, when we've got when we've moved these kids and we've randomly assigned them like a medic, you know, like the medical people tell us we should, and we did all this stuff and we don't find the facts. And the the point that I'm going to make here is that you know people choose their associates to be like themselves. So if you think about it, you take some guy from you know, who's at risk from a neighborhood where everyone is is at risk, and you stick him in a group where only half the people are at risk. Well, who do you think he's going to interact with? You know, you're going to say, well, we cut the, the rate of, of bad behavior in half. Yeah, but not among this person's associates. Those are the, you know, they're not, he's not interacting with the National Merit Scholars in his new school, okay? He's, you know, he's finding the other guys who were doing, who were doing bad stuff. Um, so, you know, and, and no one has made this point. I mean, at some level, I, I hope it's obvious that people choose their friends to be like them. But, you know, to think about the implications of this, no one's, no one's thought about this stuff. Um, there's some interesting effects of group size. Um, smaller groups make it harder for people to sort out, right? If you're, if you're stuck with only, you know, I went to an, a high school, an elementary school with only 20 kids in my class. If I didn't like them, I was stuck with them. You know, if you wind up at a school like Ohio State and you've got 50,000 people to choose from, you know, you can, you know, you can find, you know, the, you know, your ethnic group, your religion, your age, you know, exactly your hobby, you know, and you don't have to talk to anyone else in, on the planet. You know, you've got, you've got your, your group. So group size is very important, something that no one, you know, people haven't thought about. Then there's some other things that come out of this that are sort of more nerdy, um, both econometrically, but, you know, I think important. Um, anyway. Okay. Before, so now I'm going to go out and actually sort of show you what I've done. But are there are there questions on this stuff before I do that? Clarifying questions, substantive questions. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's so now. This is so now. Okay, so that's so that's a perfect question, and that's what I'm going to try to show you in in two ways. So the first thing that I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to show you that just as a fact, people interact more with people who are similar to themselves than people who are different from themselves. So like, if I couldn't show you that people interacted more with guys who were like them than with guys who were different from them, you'd sort of say maybe this theory is right, but you know. You know how you know what's going on. Then the second thing, and I'm not really going to do this. I, mean, I actually have, if I have time, I'll sort of wave my hands on this part. But the paper goes through some really nasty um, econometrics to try to show that it actually is the case that people are more influenced by the people around them. And I'll I'll try to sketch the argument here. Although I'm not going to go I'm not going to go through it. Um, because you'll you'll all be you know you'll all be hanging yourselves if I if I do. So so the things that I'm going to do. Age, is it 
So, so the way the dimensions that I'm going, to, I mean, the way to think about it is these are various dimensions along which we can assess similarity or dissimilarity, and I'm going to focus on here, and this is largely a data restriction, okay? Race, um, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, and then also behaviors. And so I can see, you know, you know, do you know do people associate with people who have the same race, the same ethnicity, same socioeconomic stuff? And then I can also, and and this is the complicated thing, but it's you know, but it, but it, but it, the logic is the same. Do the guys who look like they should smoke a lot hang out with other people who look like they should be smoking a lot? Do the people who, you know, who have behavioral problems, how about the people who have strong academic achievement? What about the people who are, um, you know, who, 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 you know, the other substance uses? So we can look at those, we can look at all those dimensions. And I'd be happy to look at all kinds of other stuff, but, you know, I'm, I'm stuck with what they, with, with what they put in the survey. Although it's, I think it's a, you know, they're, they're the, you know, sort of the, the right suspects are here. So let me so let me launch into stuff, and I'm gonna um, and so let me just sort of um, for for people for whom it's useful, um, this may be informative, and for people whom it's not, I'll try to make it all very clear. What I'm going to do is is run a regression in which I'm going to take the share of, say say it's the the characteristic I'm looking at is whether someone's white. Okay, so I'm going to take the share of a person's friends who are white, and I'm going to regress that on whether that person is white. All the other stuff I can observe about them, you know, whether the mom's education, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, you know, number of siblings, blah, you know, whatever you can think of, and then a bunch of dummy variables for the individual grade in the school that that person is in. Okay, and the results here. Are, are the main results are in the first column, and what they show, say if you look at this white thing, is it says that white students' friends are 25% more white than other students in the same school grade. Okay, that's a large effect. For blacks, it's over 50% more of their friends are black than this than p other students in the same school grade. Controlling for, you know, everything I observe about their their family backgrounds, and it goes down, you know, Asians, so forth. I mean, so the you know Hispanics, um, and then we have a bunch of measures of sort of family background, um, whether the mother has some college, mother's a homemaker, whether there's a father present, and people are systematically associating with people. Other people, that people's associates are systematically more like themselves than. Uh, the other people in their grades. You can control for the neighborhoods that people come in. I have a smaller set of data on that. You see exactly the same stuff shows up there. Okay. Um, the next thing that I'm going to do, and this this is nerdy, okay, um, is and but it's not that hard, and I'll show it to you. Is I'm going to look at how um, people's associations vary with the composition of their groups, and let me show you this picture. I think it'll make it. Fairly, fairly straightforward. So the x-axis here is the share of the students in a particular school grade who are black. Okay, and the y-axis gives the share of people's associates who are black. Okay, and then the the gray 
uh, rectangles, the gray squares that sort of start out, go really steep, and then flatten out, and then they sort of have a little tail up at the, at the right side. That's the share of black students whose associates are black. Okay? And what this says is if you put a student in a grade where there are no blacks, none of their friends are black. Okay? That's not super surprising. But if you put them in a grade where 10% of the students are black, 20% of the black students' friends are black. So as soon as they get other people who are like themselves to associate with, they start to segregate out. And then as you, you, know, as you keep on going, you know, this rises pretty quickly. They segregate out, and then it sort of flattens out. They've, se they've segregated out you know, a fair amount, and you know, additional changes in the group composition don't matter much after you get to 30 40% of the class being black. Okay. Um, you can do the same thing for, for, for non-black students. That's, these are these, uh, that's this thing here. And the, the, you want to read this going from the right to the left. If you start the kids out in a grade that's all black, the non-black students, all of their friends are black, basically. right? And then as you cut the share of the students who are black, you add some more non-blacks, the, the non-black kids start to segregate out and associate with themselves. And very quickly, by the time you're, you know, at 70% of the school grade, you know, 30% of the school grade is non-black, you know, less than 20% of these kids, you know, this is a school grade where 70% of the kids are black, and, you know, you know, 20% of the non-blacks' friends are black. So these guys are segregated out a tremendous amount, even in a school that's almost all black, you know, even in a school grade that's almost all black. And you can do these things for, you know, here I've got white, black, Asian, Hispanic. You know, this pattern just shows up in each of these things. The, you know, the, the owned guys segregate out quickly. The other guys just sort of have to force them to associate with people who are, who are different from themselves. Um, the last thing that I'll, I'll do sort of in terms of results is I'll talk about school, about size. I want to leave some time for questions. Um, and the idea here is very simple. It's just large groups facilitate sorting. If there are more people I can choose, you know, I mean, say I'm, I want to associate with someone who's like me, okay? But I also want to associate with someone who I like, you know? I mean, uh, you know, the guy may be demographically, you know, my mirror image, but it's like, you know, I like opera and he likes, you know, heavy metal. We're not going to get very far here, right? So, you know, but if I have a large group holding the composition of the group constant, that's going to make it easier for me to find guys who, who are like me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to include an interaction, same, same specification as the one I just showed you, basically, but I'm going to include my characteristics interacted with the size of the school grade. And the results here show that in larger school grades, more of people's associates, people's associates are more like themselves based on you know, this race, ethnicity, and, and socioeconomics than in smaller school grades. If you take the, you know, the coefficient for blacks, it says that as you double the size of a school, holding the, holding the share of blacks in the school constant, holding the composition constant, you know, 7% more of the blacks' friends are going to be black. Okay? So, um, so you know, the, you know, this is another way of thinking about how these you know, people are choosing their friends in a, in, a, in a way that's going to be optimal for them. You give them, you know, you give them more options, and then, they, and then they choose guys who, 
who look like themselves more. I'm, I talk a bunch about behaviors in the paper. I'm not going to do it now um, because it's just, it's just, you know, because of the time. Yeah? Just in case it's a part of the behaviors. Um, you know, to go back to your initial question, which is um, how can we understand why some people in a rural neighborhood, the neighborhoods are employed and others aren't, I'm wondering whether this data is going to help support that. And I'm thinking about Penelope Eckert's data, which I think you, I don't know whether you economists will find it equally rigorous because it's designed in linguistics and ethnography. But she did research, I can't remember if it's Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland, one of those cities, mm -hmm. where she found that a different set of explanations for the same kinds of problems. What she found is that there were huge variations in vowel in vowel use. It's, it, if you want it, I've heard her give a talk and she sometimes will liken it to something like um, valley crossing in, uh, in, in Southern California where there's a very large Ioana vowel, you know, really big vowel. And she found an absolute correlation, not, not, not like even an 80%, but way up near 100% correlation between kids who do big vowels and, and have poor success in school and don't go on to get good employment, mm -hmm. and kids with very tight vowels who go on to be enormously successful. So then she went on to do ethnographic research to find out what other things correlate. Mm -hmm. And in the days when she was doing her research, the size of a bell bottom She also was able to track students who moved from one group to another and found that they changed the shape of their vowels as they became more successful or at least less successful. So that it might be that these same kinds of, um, that, that, that she could have run the same kind of data about race or about association or about who, who are your friends, but it might not have the same explanatory power as the behavioral which, in fact, are more mobile. I mean, you can change your vowels. You can, those kinds of vowels can change. You can't probably change your accent altogether. Right. We're talking about something within a school, within a, a region. Um, and she, I think that her research ended up becoming taken up by a lot of William LaBeouf students who was a big vowel expert, who I think he called, you know, I don't know if the economists would call it, it's all computer driven, it's all data. Right, so, so this sounds, I, I'm not familiar with this work, and so I, I wrote down Penelope Eckert's name, and if there's a particular paper or book that you'd recommend, perhaps you could um, uh, give it to me at the end of the talk or email it to me if you have to run or what have you. Um, so, you know, it would strike me that the, you know, the, why don't we? I mean, why don't we broaden it to be, you know, linguistic, you know, patterns and perhaps behavioral patterns and so forth. Um, you know, seem like they would be something that would be determined by social groups. You know, why are these people doing it? Well, because you know their friends are doing it, or the you know the the cool kid is doing it, or what have you. And then you know they're you know, they're potentially impacting the outcomes, right? Now, you need to be careful. Is it the people who, 
knew they, you know, who weren't going to get jobs and didn't care about getting jobs, who took this on because they, you know, didn't, you know, realize that it wasn't going to be penalizing them because they weren't going to be, you know, working at Goldman Sachs anyway, or is it the, you know, or is it is it the 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 language patterns having direct effects? Um, you know, my intuition is is probably a bit of both. I have some other work um, that looks at language ability and uh, the, the jobs that people are employed in, and you find that you know, you know, not surprisingly, um, people who uh, you know people who whose whose language isn't so good, um, isn't whose language isn't so well, um, don't uh, don't you know don't. Uh, you know, don't get jobs in retail trade and sort of other, you know, you know, jobs that would be appropriate skill-wise, but where, you know, a lot of interpersonal interactions are important. Um, so I, you know, so I'm prepared to believe that they're, that they're big effects, but then the question is sort of teasing the things out. I think, you know, I think that, you know, I've learned a lot from reading ethnographies of this stuff. I mean, my work obviously is quantitative and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not qualified to do ethnographic work. They, you know, they throw me back to Ohio State to get out of here. You don't know what the hell you're doing, you know. But, but, you know, I think I've I've learned a lot from it, and it's sort of, you know, is very, you know, very provocative work when done well. Yeah, Pam. Right, so you're you're obviously at a at a different end of the of the the distribution of of, of backgrounds of people who are in the room, right? Um, so it's a, it's a good question. You know, economists have, as I said, focused really closely on the causality issues because economists that's like you know for better or worse that's what we you know care about um, you know tremendously. And I think it's important. I think it's easy to say, oh, these two things are correlated. There must be a causal effect. And you go, oh, my, you know, this, this is nuts, you know. Um, so it's very easy to come out and make bold policy prescriptions based on, you know, based on correlations and say, but, you know, there's no causal, you know, there's no, you know. I mean, if you took William Julius Wilson's stuff, you'd say the most important thing is to, is to move people out of, out of, out of high-poverty neighborhoods and it's, you know, you know the best results that we now have say it doesn't have much of an effect. I think um, that's at least my reading of the literature. So that's where economists have looked at the at these social interactions and, and basically ignored you know the network structure inside of groups. And what I'm trying, I mean, there is work on networks in economics, but it has much more to do with. Um, Information transmission and how information gets from one place to an, one person in place to another, 
um, than it does on these on the sort of the social influences of groups like I'm talking about here. So what I would look at, I'm obviously not really doing a lot with the network structure here, other than just are you this guy's friend or not. Um, and uh, you know, I think this is sort of a first step, you know, for economists to you know to try to bite off how can we think about network structure in a way that's you know going to be useful for thinking about behaviors. I mean, the other thing that's different, I think, between sociologists and economists is that you know I think sociologists care about about networks as an end in and of themselves. Like you know, you guys just. You know that's just just cool, you know. And economists, you know, that's like a that's a right hand side variable. I I got to go out and find, you know, I got to find some behavior, you know, poverty or violence or 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 or, or you know non marital fertility or something to, to to look at how it's affected by that network structure. And and so we want to be connecting those two up. Um, so, but I, you know, I, and, and my goal—I mean, in the in the work, this work, the work that I'm planning and doing now on leaders and other work—is going to try to go further into the actual network structure and use more information about it. But you know, we can talk talk about. Uh, I've talked a bit to Dana Haney, Dana Haney about doing that. Maybe we can get you involved too. Yeah. As soon as you have an opportunity to hang out with people of your own race, that's what they tend to do. But and so you, you give us the implication that therefore there's not a lot of uh, transmission at the behavioral level going on. But let's say you're in a school of 70% one, 30% the other, and there are very distinct behavioral patterns between the two, which you haven't showed us whether that's mm -hmm. true or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now you have a school that's highly mixed, so that even though they're still segregating into their respective race communities. Do those two race communities actually, on some behavioral dimension, look a lot more similar than when those race communities are um, segregated completely? Mm -hmm. So as you move to your middle, even though the friendship networks are continue to be segregated, maybe the whole uh, overall behavioral pattern has changed, or not? I don't know. Right. So, so I haven't, and I'm not sure that the data would allow me to um, look at exactly the question that you're doing, which is. Sort of how do the the common behaviors between you know how similar the behaviors in one racial or ethnic or socioeconomic group to another racial or ethnic or socioeconomic group as a whole as I vary the you know as I as I go from a school where basically everyone's in one you know how, how do the you know whites compare to the non-whites in a school that's almost all white as opposed to a school that's almost all non-white as opposed to a school that's pretty integrated. That question, I, that question um, is an interesting one. It's not one that I've, I've, I've done in this. Um, but but what, I mean, what this would say is that in a school that's sort of mixed, you know, it would allow people to, you know, to find other people of the same group and form sort of you know, groups that are, you know, that are behave, you know, the, the whites hang out with the other whites and behave in one way and the non-whites hang out with the other, with the, with the non-whites and behave in a, you know, and behave differently, you know, whatever way they, they want to. And um, the, the behavioral results that I have, do have here, show that, you know, if you put people um, in a group with other people, you know, if you take someone who looks like they're predisposed to, um, 
to, uh, you know, to having behavioral problems and you put them in a school with no one else with behavioral problems, they don't have nearly as many behavioral problems as if you stick them in a school that sort of got, it, got some other people who they, can, you know, who, they, who, can, who they can hang out with and can support them. And ditto if you look at substance abuse, substance use, cognitive you know, test scores, and so forth. So it, it looks like you, it looks like, you know, I, I mean, I haven't answered the specific, look at the specific question that you're doing, but it looks like what you're doing is, you know, when you have other people who can, you can sort of hang out with and support you in doing what you're doing, that's what you, you know, you get. If you force people to be with people who are different from themselves, then they conform to what the other guys are doing. Is that, yeah. started by talking about how economists are freaks about causal explanations, and I was wondering in looking you know, through what, you, what you've run through so far, whether you've gone beyond correlations. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can show that a black high school kid uh, in a larger school is much more likely to select a black friend, but how do your statistics get us to an explanation for why those choices are made. Okay, so they're... they're that, would, that to me would be the cause. If you want to explain behavior, if, if the cause you want to explain is behavioral decision making, how, how, does, how does a mathematical model get at that? So there are, I, I think there, there are two questions wrapped up in what you're saying. Um, so one question is a statistical question, which is how, you know, how do I feel that I've demonstrated some causal relationships here as opposed to, a as opposed to correlations? That's sort of one question. I think the second question is sort of how do I use the theory that is in the paper but not obviously in the talk? Um, to you know, understand the patterns and provide a you know a, a you know a you know causal story or narrative or whatever you want to you know however you want to think about it to understand and interpret the, the 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 results that I have and I think they're I think they're two separate issues. So the the first is that is that fair? Okay. So the first issue is um, you know what I've done and and the 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 I think the strength of this paper lies less in coming up with a really, really powerful way of demonstrating causality than in linking sort of some some theories to the empirical analysis here. 
Um, so I, 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 you know, so I, so, so totally with, you know, with all my cards on the table, you know, I give myself a B plus or A minus in terms of demonstrating causality here. The way I'm doing it, just to, just to, so you're on the same page, is I have dummy variables for schools, for individual grades in individual schools. So I'm looking to see inside a particular grade. You know, inside a particular school, you know, or the grades that, you know, they're slightly more black. How did the associations of the blacks compare to the whites than, in, than a, another grade in the school that's slightly less black? And the argument is, well, you know, you're going to that school because that's where your parents live. Maybe your brother or sister's in a different grade. The parents aren't going to move because, you know, there just happen to be a couple more white kids or black kids or or kids who don't live with their fathers in, in your particular grade than in your brother's or sister's grade. So, you know, like I say, I give myself sort of a B plus or an A minus for that. I think it, you know, I think it goes a, a, a fair distance, but I don't think it's an ironclad, unrefutable way of thinking about it. The second one is how do I, you know, how do I sort of interpret these results? And that to me is, you know, that's what the theory is about. I haven't talked about it in particular depth, although I've sketched the main force. And, uh, you know, my argument is that people are choosing who they associate with and they choose the people who, you know, who are like themselves. And, you know, that's, it's, you know, I've tried to show that along a variety of dimensions, the, 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 just the, the gaps in terms of associations, how they vary with the composition of the school, and I think surprisingly how they vary with the size of the school, which to my knowledge no one's, I mean it's, it seems sort of obvious when you, when you think about it, but I'm not aware that anyone's, that anyone's done that in economics or in any other discipline. So you know, that, you know this is a variety of evidence that's going to try to paint a picture that this is the right story, but you know if you can come up with another story that's consistent with the results, I I haven't proved, right, I mean, this is, a, this, is an old, this is an old argument. You can never prove a theory right, you know, empirically. You can only disprove it. So I'm providing an interpretation for a set of results here. Just, just a, a, a quick comment. Let, let's say you, you were interested in determining whether at a large high school uh, a black kid from a poor family, you say you've got child A, a black kid from a poor family, and child B, a black kid from an upper middle class family, and you want to know if race, you just do it upon it, you want to know if race will be the primary determinant of their group affiliation. Well, be careful. I'm not... No, no, be careful. I'm not. I'm. I'm absolutely not arguing that this is the primary determinant. Okay, and and and, and you know, I mean, this is. You know, I don't have family income, and I wouldn't trust it all that well, if, all that much, if I did. But you know, this is why mom's education, mom's, uh, you know, at home, uh, you know, uh, dad present. You know, these are all to get it. You know, socioeconomic status. So the, the are. I mean, I mean, I think. You know, I think race and ethnicity are very important things. Uh, you know, the results, you know, uh, for blacks. Um, here, the, you know, here you get big results for Asians. Well, why do I get big effects of being a large school grade for Asians? Because there are not that many Asians running around. So, you know, you know, so it can really help, you know, it can really facilitate things to, to, have, to have more of these 
uh, to, to have a larger school grade if, if Asians want to associate with each other. So I'm not, I mean, to me, people are, are sorting on all of these dimensions. And then also on behaviors as well. You know, um, you know, two kids, different racial group, but, you know, they're both into a particular activity are going to associate with each other much more than you would predict. So I, I'm not, I, what I'm trying to do is to argue that, you know, that, 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 that people on a whole range of dimensions are associating with people who are like themselves. And, you know, that that has important implications for how we want to think about these policies. But, but I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, to, to pick out particular things and privilege them or anything. Yeah. Do you have a question that's... So let me let me try to let me try to respond to, to all of these questions. Rick, was your question directly related? Okay, um, and I also realize that sort of the time is you know we're we're past one, so I mean, people who need to go, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be insulted. I most people sit with baseball caps listening to their iPods when I talk. So you know, uh, you're, you've been more kind than most of the people I you know speak to. Um, so to both of these questions, um, I, I think what you're, um, Alex, I think what you're talking about is that that the strength of these, um, you know, homophily or choosing people to be like yourself patterns might vary across schools, and I haven't looked at that. I'm not sure that the, I'm not sure that I have the, enough data to do that because. You say, well, crap, man, you got 45,000 observations. That should be plenty. But once they start doing that, the school becomes the unit of observation. And so I, I, maybe I could do something like, are these patterns stronger in the South or, or, or whatever other things? It's an interesting question. It's one that I hadn't, um, that I hadn't thought about. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll think about it more. Okay. I'm not aware. I mean, to me, this data is, I mean, this data is frustrating in, in many ways, but it's 
so much beyond any other data set that I'm aware of that it's, it's just, you know, everyone who I know who's thinking about these questions is using this data because there, there's no other data that's, that's, that, 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 that's, I mean, you know, that's even in miles of this. So, I mean, that's just, so, I mean, I, I, I think it would be a great question in the, in the way I do it is I look across regions or, or large metropolitan areas versus small, you know, I mean, those would be the games that I, I'd play. But, but I'm, you know, but I'm stuck with the U.S. And, you know, if NIH wants to give me, you know, $10 million, maybe I can go out and, and do others. In terms of your question, Carol, at the point here is the patterns aren't so much reverse. It's just that in a small school, you know, you're, you're stuck with those people, you know, and, and, and I think it's, you know, I think it's important, you know, it says that, you know, if, if people don't have a lot of options, they're going to associate with people who are pretty different from themselves. And then it's, and so, and you, if, as a policymaker, you can exploit that, right? Because you can say, if I want to make these people interact, I don't send them to Ohio State. I send them to, you know, I send them to Middlebury College or something where they're stuck with each other, right? And, you know, if I put them in a large school, they're going to all four. I mean, you know, and I, I'm not, I think Ohio State's awesome, right? But, you know, you know, but making people, you know, forcing people to associate with people who are different from themselves is not a benefit of a, of a large institution like Ohio State where I can find, you know, one-legged, you know, red-haired, you know, guys who are 11 feet tall, and, and I can have a club of those people, you know, and they don't have to talk to the guys who are only, you know, 10 foot 6 or something, you know. No, I think you know the goal at this point. Okay, the goal of this research, and and maybe you know maybe your reaction is shoot, you know, we you know, 
we, we need this paper? I mean, you know, but, but I think we do. You know, that's, the, that's sort of the amazing thing. I mean, it's something, you know, I had a, a when I, my, my, uh, I took a class in graduate school and, and, uh, uh, from, from the man who ultimately became my dissertation advisor, he said every year he explained to his mother what the what they won the no, you know they announced the Nobel Prize in economics, and then you know his mother called him and say, Sherwin, what did they win? You know what did they win? This guy really win for? He says, he says, you know. So I told them, you know, they won for finance. They said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. She said, they gave him a million dollars for that, you know. Um, you know, so I mean, at some level, but yeah, they did. You know, um, at some level, um, you know, at some level, I think this is pointing out the obvious, but I think it's pointing out the obvious um, that's never really been pointed out in, that I've seen in the in the scientific literature here, and trying to show that thinking about it rigorously has important implications for you know, these housing relocation programs and so forth. So the goal of this is simply to show that people are choosing the, their associations, you know, their associates to be like themselves. And I think the question that you raise is an important one, which is, you know, what's going to determine which dimensions are the most, you know, are the most salient ones for people to be thinking about. I'm not, I'm not making any, you know, I'm not, I'm not making any effort to say, okay, race is more important than socioeconomic background or, or, or ethnicity, you know, that, or behaviors. I mean, I'm, I, it's, it's this, this research at this point isn't about trying to, to run, you know, to run races, you know, competitions between different things. It's just to show that people do this and try to talk about the implications of this for policies that we care about. And I think that, you know, I think it is an interesting question. What things are going to be the, be the most, you know, are going to be the most important? Um, and, 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 what, and what implications does it have for, you know, for, for conflict between groups? I mean, I think that's exciting stuff that I want to think about. Yeah, definitely. It's clearly going to have implications for how you make uh, groups uh, come together. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Thank you all for staying. There'll be more. Yeah, the, here, here are some of the more. Okay. So just, I probably should have put this up while everyone was still here. Steve Davis is going to talk, he's a great guy, and he's going to talk about nothing that has anything to do with this. But he's, <laughs> but he's, but you know, I'm really thrilled that he agreed to come um, and to talk about a, sort of a cost-benefit analysis of the war in Iraq. But the two that are going to be on this topic are going to be Scott Carroll using data from the U.S. Air Force Academy and then G.G. Foster, who's going to be looking at University of Maryland students. Thank you. Thank you.